I, just to kind of, I was going to use a different illustration, but then I changed my mind when I was thinking about it. So I'm going to use a different one that I've got written down. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I, uh, we do this from time to time, but decided, you know what, it's been a while since we got out of town. Uh, not that International Falls is bad or anything, but we, we like to get out, of, out and explore some of the areas. So yesterday, we went down to Bemidji and uh, traveled the two hours down there, packed a little lunch, ate on the way, and then kind of hit the stores uh, right as uh, you get off there on 71. And some of you are nodding your heads like, yeah, I don't know where you're talking about. So you got the Target. Got the I got to go to Home Depot yesterday for the first time in a long time. I love Home Depot. No offense to Menards. I'm sorry. No offense to Menards. It's, Menards is okay. I just like Home Depot better, okay? And so for me to go there was great. And uh, we had a fun time. We went to Kohl's, went to Target. We, we, we're, we're clearance shoppers. So uh, this was on clearance yesterday. So were these. So was this. My wife will brag to you. She got these. These are what are they called? Chaps ties. She got like five of them for less than twenty bucks. Okay. So so that's who we are. We're clearance shoppers. And so once we walk into a store, whether it be a Target, Walmart, uh, Kohl's, TJ Maxx, uh, we gotta go for the clearance stuff because you get some good stuff. Well, our main reason from going out for going to Bemidji yesterday was just to get out, just to explore a little bit. It had been a busy few weeks with uh, Bible Club and missionaries staying with us, and so we just decided we'd get out. Well, as we went on, we found more reasons to stay out with all the deals that we, we came across and the time of shopping that we did. And perhaps you yesterday had some, some great times getting out and you had different reasons for doing so, whether just to get out and see family. Jerry and Yvonne ce- celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary the other day, so they had some, some folks over and reasons to celebrate there. Well, this morning we come to three more reasons in our little series here of meditating on uh, the, the reasons for the incarnation. I want to give you three more as we conclude and just kind of bring our attention to, that, to the reality of the resurrection and, and think upon that, meditate upon it. So here's three more reasons. First one, from verses 14 through 16, Jesus came to destroy the devil and death. Verse 14, insomuch that as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil. As the author of Hebrews has continued to lay out his arguments for the supremacy of Christ, and as we've meditated the past few weeks on his incarnation, his coming to earth, he again points out to the reality that he had to become a man to make this possible. He had to become a man to do this task of destroying the devil and death. He uses the, the phrase at the beginning there in verse 14, insomuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. The word partake means to, to share with, participate in. It's designed to show that this is reality now. That the children of men, us as human beings, we, we have flesh, we have blood. That's our normal makeup. It's our humanity who we are as, as mankind. We cannot be anything else. We can't be angels. We can't be some spirit beings that float around, if you will. We're flesh and blood. And so likewise, middle of verse 14, Christ had to become a man. He had to share in the same as it says. That word shared is kind of the same as the word partake in the first part of verse 14. 
but it means to belong or to share in. So the author is saying here that Jesus became a man so that he could share in our humanity. He had to become man for God's plan to be carried out. I mean, think about that with me for a minute. The the God of glory, the infinite God, became a man on purpose. If you look at the different, um, not theologies, but different uh, religious systems, uh, the the Muslims, the, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, their gods become man for their own purposes. And most oftentimes, if you look at the mythologies, especially of those, it's more out of uh, a convenience rather than a desire. Well, here in the scriptures, we find that Jesus became a man on purpose. His grace, his love, his mercy drove him to take on humanity. And we don't think about that too much, but it is worth considering that God, who is supreme, who is infinite, who is all-powerful, came and took on limited power, limited ability, limited space for us. Right? That's what you just celebrated, right? He came in a limited fashion so that you and I could one day be with Him. He had to become like us to make it happen. Secondly, he died to destroy the devil, that he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil. That word that is in the original language, and it's the word that, but it is designed to show a purpose. So as as the author of Hebrews has done consistently through this little section here, he has pointed our attention to Christ coming to earth for a purpose. Multiple purposes, as we've seen. And what was the purpose? Is that through death, Jesus would destroy the devil. That's how how he would be destroyed, is through death. And and if if you're you're a grammar fan and, and you like to read like me, you'll notice some irony here. Death, which came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, right? In the garden? is now the very same tool that Jesus uses to destroy the devil who has the power of death. The very method that Satan uses to get people on his side, to get people on his side as he's, he's awaiting the coming conflict with God in the end times, the very method he uses is the very method by which he was destroyed through death. The word destroyed here means to put a stop or an end to. We might liken it to demolishing a building. I don't know if you've ever seen a building demolished. We've had a few of them in here in the I Falls here recently with making way for new construction. I'm thinking more of uh, out on 2nd where the new gas station is going in. They had to level that, what was it, a uh, hotel, motel, something like that there, right? What'd they have to do? They had to take it down. They had to make it in essence, stop existing so they could have a new gas station put in, which is a great thing. Well, think of it, think of that old motel, if you will, 
as limited as an illustration as it is, as the devil himself, and Jesus coming with a wrecking ball and just destroying him through his death on the cross, right? I mean, again, talk about irony. This was a once-and-done act. That's the idea of the the word uh, destroy, that he might destroy. That's uh, putting the action in the past. So the devil was destroyed in the past, and he is still destroyed today. 1 John 3, 8 mentions this. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Let me pause there just for a minute, and I'll get it more in depth at the end. Are you thankful this morning that the devil is destroyed? That he has no power over you? That Christ on the cross literally wiped him out through the very means that he tried to destroy the Son of God? The devil is destroyed. Who has the power of death? The word power here has the idea of, of strength or might. So that this little addendum, the... Uh, who had the power of death, that is the devil, is used to describe who has the power. And honestly, it is the devil right now who has it. And yet his full destruction is still awaiting. Some of you say, well, he's still active out there. He is. But his end is sure. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. His destruction is sure. His end is sure. He is destroyed now, and ultimately one day, he will be destroyed forever. He died to destroy the devil. He also died to release us from the fear of death. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The word release here means to set free Its construction points to the fact that this is a completed action in the past. He set us free when we came to faith in Christ, and that freedom continues to exist. He released us from the fear of death, and all of that effect continues. And in doing so, through the fear of death, we were subject to bondage. What does the word subject mean? It means to be guilty or liable because of wrongdoing. All of mankind is subject to death, and the fear of it rightly This isn't some false accusation that is upon us. We're all underneath the penalty of death for good reason because of our sin. And since man has willfully sinned against God, they are right to be underneath the fear of death. And that fear of death leads to bondage, or slavery is the term there. It's a a bondage that lasts throughout life. And the bondage is to sin and death. There is no freedom apart from Christ. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would not, no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He died to release us from the fear of death that comes from sin. So the, the, the two factors are in play here. The fear of death and sin itself. But I think... The author is constructing the term there to just point to the fact that God used death to release those who are afraid of death because of their sin. 
Again, does that, let me pause there and just say, isn't that, isn't that the wonderful love of God? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting, everlasting life. God died so that we would almost, we would not have only the promise of eternal life, but we were released from that fear of death. Now, I, I would dare say that all of us this morning have some sort of fear of death. Okay, this is this humanity, reality. I do. I mean, I, I, I don't relish the thought of dying. I don't think anybody else in this room does. But that fear of death is very temporary if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Amen? That ultimately, that is taken care of and was taken care of on the cross. And so that moment in time, as painful as that will be or as natural as that will be, will only be a, a blip on the radar screen. And as the Apostle Paul writes, the death is swallowed up in victory. You know, when Merle Constantine passed away back in April, she had that moment of death. But as soon as he closed her eyes, I would dare say she opened them up in the gracious arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because he died to destroy the devil and to destroy the fear of death so that we can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The answer is nowhere. Lastly, he, die, he saves those who need saving. Verse 16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now some of you say, well, why does he talk about this? Well, I think he's just hearkening back to his argument early in chapter 2 of, of the, the superiority of Jesus to the angels. And so he's bringing his readers back to that, that reality and, and saying, hey, logically thinking here, guys, angels don't need saving, right? They don't. The word aid here means to, to be concerned with or help. God was, not, excuse me, God was not concerned with angels when he came. He was concerned with with men. That's the, that's the idea of the word seed of Abraham. Angels don't need saving. We do. So Jesus had to become a man in order to save men. If angels needed saving, that was it. Jesus was already good up in heaven. But man, we need saving. And Jesus had to come to save us. And that leads me to ask a question before I get to my point of application. Do you this morning acknowledge that you need saving? You know, the people in our world today who, who are proud and, and are working on themselves, they, they acknowledge that they need help, but they're going to look inside themselves to save themselves, right? But when you and I look at the Scriptures, we have to acknowledge that there's no way of saving ourselves. Not of works, right? Titus 3.5. But do you, you and I this morning, even post-salvation, acknowledge that we need a Savior. Jesus came for that purpose. To die to save you and to save me. So here's my point of application. One of many. Do you live like the devil is defeated? Or do you live like the devil is victorious? 
Again, in the Christian life, yes, we, we suffer sin, we suffer temptation. That's just natural. And we fail and we fall and we, and, and we, we go through those periods of times. But, but, but do we live in light of the fact that devil is a defeated foe? Or do we act like he's still, or he is a victorious champion? Because he isn't, <laughs> right? He's not a victorious champion. He is a fallen foe. But too many Christians act like the devil is supreme in their lives rather than Jesus and live like he has control over them instead of Christ. So are you living your life in your work, in your actions, in your words, in your retirement, in your apartment, in your house? Are you living, speaking, acting in such a way showing that the devil is a defeated foe? That he does not have control over you. He does not have the fear of death lingering over you. But he's long gone in his influence. Be the person who lives the reality that the devil is a defeated foe. Second reason that Jesus came is to be our hot, complete high priest. Verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, he highlights here, he had to become a man. Jesus had to become a man, not just for for dying on a cross, but to be our high priest, to be the perfect high priest. The word had to means to owe or has the idea of obligation. If Jesus was going to be our intercessor, our high priest before God, he had to become a man. See who is made. The word made here means to resemble or become like. So this is the the reincarnation or the uh, incarnation, excuse me, uh, truth here. We can also notice that uh, he had to be made like. The word like here shows purpose. He had to become a man in order to be a high priest. And what high priest is this? That he had to become a man so that purpose he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. The word might be here refers to intention. So the intention of Christ coming to earth was not only to die, but also to be the perfect high priest. Remember the high priest in the Old Testament was the one who did the sacrifices, especially the one on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, going into the Holy of Holies, offering sacrifices before God so the sins of the nation could be atoned for. And there could be the possibility if he did it wrong, he'd die. He would be struck down by God if he did it wrong. But Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice and therefore is our perfect high priest. He's also merciful, it says, and faithful. The word merciful means to be compassionate. The word faithful means to be trustworthy or sure. I don't know how many of you grew up with pets. I did. Grew up with dogs. Uh, my mom is a huge dog lover. My mom, interesting fact about my mom, she will never watch a movie where a dog dies. Not literally. She cannot watch Old Yeller. She cannot watch some of these other ones where the dog dies. She will be an absolute mess. My aunt is worse. She will not watch a, she won't watch a movie where any animal dies. Okay. But pet lovers, for those of you out there, Bob and Barb just got a, a new dog. You know? we, we, we often use that word faithful to describe our pets, don't we? Except for cats. Cats. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. Uh, faithful. Our pets are faithful, aren't they? We use that because they're loyal. You know, they're, they're kind of always there for us. Um, they love us unconditionally, even though we may be a little sore at them. So in contrast to other pride priests, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to single you out. I just totally threw it out there. Um, in contrast to other high priests who failed in these areas of mercy and compassion, faithfulness, Jesus perfectly completes the requirements of the office and character of the high priest, unlike the Old Testament high priest. He couldn't do it. He was, he was flawed. He was a human. He was not both God and man. And therefore, Jesus was faithful and merciful in all things pertaining to God. That, the idea of the word, the phrase, in all things pertaining to God, notes where God, Jesus was faithful, you know, in all things regarding his ministry as faithful high priest, and that he fulfilled the commandments of God regarding the high priest. And we can go back to the Old Testament and see the, the different uh, descriptions of the high priest, what he was supposed to do, what he was supposed to, how he was supposed to act and say, and all these different things. Jesus fulfilled those completely and perfectly, and has earned the distinction as faithful and merciful high priest. Lastly, notice that Jesus became the perfect high priest to atone for sin to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation here is used in the New Testament. The only other time this word specifically is used is in Luke 18.13. And it would seem that this description and the one used in Luke 18.13 is one of forgiveness. That Christ died as the high priest to atone or forgive our sin. So theologically, let me talk about theological terms in just for a second here. Theologically, Jesus atoned for mankind's sin with his death on the cross, thereby securing forgiveness and restoration with God. 1 John 2.2 2 notes that he is the propitiation of our sins. Different word there, but same concept. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And notice also with me that in securing forgiveness to make propitiation, he did it for us. The word for means, shows who Jesus died for. He says, for the people, for the sins of the people, excuse me. He didn't die for Rick's sins or Ruth's sins or Bob's sins specifically. He died for all the sins of people, right? It's not just a select few he died for all. What, what, what sins did he die for? The word sins here means a sinful act, a moral violation or transgression of divine command, or a state of guilt that results from sin or wrongdoing. So whether it's something you committed willfully or ignorantly that violated God's command, it's called sin. And Jesus died as the complete, perfect high priest to make your sins forgiven, to allow your sins to be forgiven. So that leads me to ask the question this morning, are you grateful for Jesus, your perfect high priest? That he is faithful and merciful. He fulfilled his obligations, fulfilled what God had described a perfect high priest to be. And that he atoned for your sin and that he became a man to do so. We just celebrated his death on the cross. And the reality is that he could not do that without becoming a man fulfilling his role as high priest. 
third reason, lastly, to give you this morning to meditate on the reasons for the incarnation is that Jesus came to identify with us in our weaknesses. Verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. He himself suffered temptation to sin. Never think of Jesus in terms of being perfect as far as nothing ever happened to him. He suffered. Not just on the cross, but he suffered temptation to sin. Perhaps you can think to, to the, the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights with fasting, and then the devil coming and tempting him. Can't imagine what that was like. But he suffered. The word suffering means to experience physical, mental, or emotional suffering. He suffered temptation. It means being put to the test or enticed to sin. The grammar here refers to, to emphasizes that being done to Jesus. So in other words, what does this mean? Jesus was not immune from the temptations of the world, but yet in his suffering temptation, he was able to experience it firsthand. Jump down to chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 15, really quickly, just maybe just one page over. We'll see this in a few weeks. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He suffered temptation to sin. Why? So that he is able to help those who are being tempted to sin. He's able to aid those who are tempted to sin. The word able means ability. It refers to, to um, something you can do. And Jesus is more than able to help those who are struggling with temptations to sin. The, the word aid here is different than verse 16. The word aid here uh, emphasizes coming to the aid or help of someone in trouble. Okay, we, we might use the illustration of a lifeguard. Why do we have lifeguards on our beaches and pools? They're designed so if someone is in trouble, they can go help them. So what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's highlighting the capability of Jesus to come and help those who are tempted with sin. And it points to this reality, and perhaps you know it, perhaps, and I know it as well. When you go through a trial or a temptation, isn't it easier to help someone who's going through the same thing? I think so. There, there are times of, of struggle in my life that I have, by God's grace, overcome, and, and God has not left me there. But because of those experiences, I, I feel I'm in a better position to help people who struggle with the same thing. And so Jesus came as a man to, to suffer temptation so that he can come and identify with us in our suffering and able to help us overcome it. It's interesting to note that the, the phrase, those who are tempted, is in the grammar present tense. So it's not those who are tempted with something in the past. The author of Hebrews is using this term specifically to show that those who are being tempted now can find help with Jesus. It focuses on current struggles, not past situations. So Jesus, because of his suffering temptation during his earthly life, has the ability to help those who are struggling with sin right now. This is not help for past struggles, but current sins that keep plaguing the believer in Christ. The author of Hebrews will again note this in Hebrews chapter 12, 
verse 1, when he's encouraging us, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We're sinners, folks. Breaking news. <laughs> We're sinners, right? We still suffer temptation to sin. We still do sin. We get angry at our spouse. We get angry with life. We, we are tempted to look at something we shouldn't or say something we shouldn't, and we do it. Well, Jesus came to identify with us and our weaknesses. You do not have someone who does not understand what you're going through. Hear that a lot, don't we, today? Well, you guys just don't understand what I'm going through. I'm going through this trial, this trial. Well, let me, let me tell you this, that Jesus understands. He understands the, the pressures, the, the temptations to sin, the, the struggles just to keep going with each step, whether it be in suffering temptation to sin or just suffering. Struggle, health, trials, the loss of a loved one. Jesus knows. Do not ever come to the point in your Christian walk where you think that Jesus doesn't know what you're going through. He always does. So let me ask you this question as we, we, we finish up here. Do you run to Jesus when you're tempted to sin? When you're tempted to get mad at your wife or husband or kids or you just want to get mad at life, you're, you want to haul off and hit somebody, whatever it might be, do you run to Jesus? Because he knows. He knows what you're going through. And that's why I encourage people, and I've said this before, The Bible consistently encourages us, especially in the Psalms, to cry out to Him. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. In your suffering temptation, in your suffering in general, cry out to Jesus. Find some corner in your house or path near where you live and either physically or silently cry out to Him. Run to Jesus. He knows what you're going through. He knows the struggles you incur. He knows what's going on in your head. He knows that because he's been there. So please, as one who ran away from Jesus a lot when tempted to sin, please run to him. He knows what you're going through. He can identify and he can help. He's the only one who can help. We had a lot of good reasons yesterday to go out. It was fun. And even now, as we think back on it today, we're, we're, we're excited that we did. But we've seen in the last half of chapter 2 many reasons in this little mini-series for why Jesus came. Today we saw that Jesus came to destroy the devil and death. The devil is a defeated enemy. He has no power over us. And death has lost its sting. He came to be our complete high priest. The one who could go through and make the sacrifice. And, and we'll, he'll touch on this later in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And make perfect atonement for us. Forgiving, allowing us to be forgiven of our sins. And he came to identify with us in our weaknesses. He knows what we're suffering in temptations of sin and temptation or in, in suffering in general. And so we can run to him. 
So as we continue to study this book and seek to live out the truths about our Savior, may these reasons that Christ came never leave us and continue to make us stand in awe of what God has done so that we cannot help but testify of him to the world.